0: Hello, and welcome to this first episode of Bones, Blood and Brains, B-Cubed. My name is Alistair Short, and my aim with this hopefully interesting and long series is to chart the history of biomedical science as a role and as a science, and to spread the word of this oft-forgotten branch of the medical world. I can hear some of you ask, why? Well, firstly, you're stealing a phrase from the stand-up mathematician Matt Parker. And secondly, the answer is kind of complex. But simply put, every time you are seriously sick, biomed gets involved. Every test, every experiment, every assay is run, analysed and reported by a biomedical scientist. In this way, 70% of all diagnoses are found within the four walls of the NHS laboratory. It is the commonly held belief, not helped by the best of all ridiculous melodramas, house, that doctors do lab work. This is patently not true. Their role is much more high level and stressful than the biomed coordinating the testing and treatment of patients as well as having to have personal relationships with them things that biomeds just don't have to do but because of this the biomed does not feature highly within the mind of the general population within their world though their contributions are known to be invaluable to this end i will be doing episodes on the history of biomedical science within the nhs the rise of the ibms and the current health of the service that is the health of the biomedical departments and not the health of the NHS as a whole, that's much too big. From bacterial infections to diagnosis of diabetes, the tests that biomedical scientists use do not appear out of thin air, but are the current form of a test that might stretch back as far as the 1650s. This will be the major drive of this podcast, explaining, with a bit of luck and no shortage of judgement, take that as you will, with clarity and ease of understanding, hopefully, the history of assays and equipment, as well as the personalities, both male. Do I have to do Carrie Mullis? Meep. I'm hearing an annoying droning noise that says yes, yes, you do have to do Carrie Mullis. He is important. Damn it. And female, though not bloody Rosalind Franklin. No offense. Your science rocked, but I want to talk about other people. Dorothy Hodgkins, for example, another X-ray crystallographer, but. She is the woman that elucidated the structure of insulin before she got the x-ray crystallography. The history of women in biology is the history of x-rays and x-ray crystallography and it is very interesting, but obviously they're a lot more spread out than that. As a general point, I will be going no earlier than 1600. Why 1600, I hear you ask? Because this is the start of the early modern period. The gloom of Rome has been well and truly cast off. The 12th century renaissance and the true renaissance having done its work, God is dying and science is in the ascendancy. The science of optics, although waiting for formalisation with Newton and Huygens, has now got a good experimental basis. Chemistry is very quickly going to become more than just people chucking stuff in buckets and seeing what happens. What do you mean chemistry is still like that? And writing survives in large detail. Though, that F, that is an S, is a frustration. Is that saft or fast? So 1600 seems like the sensible place to start. I promise, as I get better at researching history, I will do an episode on biology as a science pre-1600, but it will be in a while, as it will probably end up being a triplet of episodes. With this in mind, I'm kicking off everything with the person who's had to be, at least in the modern era, and to excuse the phrase, the daddy of microbiology as a subject, Anthony von Leeuwenhoek. Born in the first half of the 17th century, during the Dutch Enlightenment, he also fits nicely as one of the earliest bioscientists, and therefore is the perfect starting point. Though, as I absolutely murder his name out loud, I regret that choice and feel like I should be doing Robert Hooke or Robert Koch instead. Both of these men are equally as important as Anton, and could equally be helped to be the father of modern biology. On that note, I realise the American English pronunciation of the letters K-O-C-H is Coke, being closer to the correct way of pronouncing his name, but I am English and I will, when I get to him, in Lindy Bage Levels of Stubbornness, be calling him Robert Cock. You can send your complaints closer to the time. Sorry, that was a sidetrack. Anton, did Born on 24th of October 1632, in the latter half of the 80 Years War, in the the capital of the nascent Netherlands, Delft, Anton, as I have always and will always know him, the youngest child and the only boy of five, seems to have lived a relatively typical early modern childhood, with his father, Philippe Antonis, a basket maker, dying when he was five. His mother, Margaretha, a daughter of a comfortable brewer, remarried Jacob Jans Molgin, a painter. Anton then briefly attended school in Wulmand, although whilst there it seems he did not learn Latin or Greek, only Dutch and simple arithmetic, before being sent to live in Benthausen with his uncle, an attorney, who tried to reinforce his learning, apparently somewhat successfully. At the age of 16, probably in response to his stepfather's death, Anton became a bookkeeper's apprentice at a linen draper's shop in Amsterdam, a move that would seem to keep Anton comfortable for most of his life owned by the apparently famous in his own right, William Davidson. His natural capabilities, in light of his relatively poor education, can be shown during this time as he was quickly promoted to cashier and bookkeeper. Much like another favourite and famous self-made man, Alexander Hamilton, born only 32 years after Anton's death. Damn I wish he did any biology work, his life is fascinating. Anton then moved back to Delft in 1654, aged 22. By this time, he was married to the daughter of what I imagine was a colleague in the haberdashery business, Barbara de May. In my quick Google search, trying to find out anything else about this lady, I discovered a much more modern Dutch scientist shares her name. I bring this up because her research seems to be in dyspraxia, which by coincidence I have. Sometimes this planet seems a little small. With Barbara, he had four children, only one of which, Maria, lived to adulthood and indeed outlived her remarkably long-lived father, dying in 1745, having lived to the age of 89. Having returned to Delft, a place I've never been to, so cannot say what it is like, he ran a new dopery business, which he kept through the 1650s. His mother died in 1644, Barbara died in 1666, not long after having given birth to one of their boys, and not long before Maria's 10th birthday. I'd like to say that Anton's life had been hard so far, but honestly I can't. Compared to 2019, yes, Anton's and indeed Maria's life was emotionally tough, but it is no different from again Alexander Hamilton's life a century later, or Elizabeth I's a century earlier. The early modern period, along with any other time pre-Jenner, Pasteur, Koch, Fleming-Florian chain was one of the early deaths and general recurrent sicknesses due to a lack of acronymology, tests and the ability to do something with that knowledge. I hope that as we go through these biographies and histories in general the sheer lack of childhood death that we have now is brought into relief. If not go to the History of England podcast by David the Crowther and just you listen in. The death of his wife, his mother, and most of his children had not stopped Anton growing in stature within Delft society to the point that it seems to, to the point that he seems to have become friends with the mighty painter Johannes Vermeyer. although with all things historical we cannot be sure beyond what paper evidence we have, which in this case is Anton's execution of Vermeer as well in 1674. That being said. These two gentlemen were well known within Delft, and so it is highly likely, even probable, that they had at least met, especially as Anton was known to be friends with Constantin Huygens and de Graaf. This is getting ahead of our story, somewhat, but as Anton doesn't really do anything that's of interest for our purposes until the 1670s, I'm sure you're getting impatient. But we must talk about two more events. In 1660, he was made the chamberlain for the assembly of the sheriffs in Delft, A job that Clifford Dobell, writing in 1923, was certain was only a sinecure. A job that requires very little effort, but pays fairly well. And finally, in 1671, Anton remarried to a lady called Cornelia Swalmius, of whose influence it's much debated. It may be that her family's social circle brought von Leeuwenhoek into contact with a group of university-educated professionals who may have encouraged his lens-making. As nice as this image is, his new wife supporting his, what was probably held to be, at the time, mostly insane and only a hobby, there is unfortunately no paper trail to suggest it's true. There is, of course, that there is, there is of course, an equal chance that Anton meant his wife through his increasing contact with that group of academics. Although, having both lived in Delft for 20 years, they may have known each other anyway. These academics included the equally obscure, but equally as important, Dr. de Graaf, who had written to Henry Oldenburg with some of Anton's observations in 1673, after pushing Anton to have a little more faith in himself about his work, despite Anton's self-proclaimed lack of letters. Say thank you to Dr. de Graaf for his intuition. So here it is then, finally, the start of Anton's most historically important career move the sending of his first letter via de Graaf out of somewhere between 200 and 500 to Henry Oldenburg in London. Henry Oldenburg being the first secretary of the fledgling Royal Society. I say fledgling, at 13 years old the RS barely counts as having existed considering it is now a whopping 358 years old, only 52 years younger than Virginia, and 100 years older than the United States as a whole. In this letter, it looks like he described the stinger of a bee, using the technology that he has now finally become relatively famous for, the single-lens microscope. If anyone has access to his letters, preferably in English, I would be most grateful, even if it means I have to redo this, what is essentially a practice episode. Apart from my desperate pleading, this is the heart of what I want to talk about, his work on microscopy. Until relatively recently, 1981 to be exact, it wasn't no, no, how he made his lens, and it was assumed that his best lens is only magnified to 200 times. A modern compound microscope does 10,000, and even then bacteria can be hard to spot, even with stains. On that note, yes, I will be doing Dr. Gram and Gram staining. Somewhere on my PC I have his original paper, but I'm pretty sure it's on that most wonderful of databases, PubMed. Is there a version of PubMed, but for history? Let me know, please. Finding out about Anton's personal life has been like pulling teeth. I understand the concept, but I can't do it. Anyway, in 1981, intact samples of Anton's were discovered by Brian J. Ford in the archives of the Royal Society. And he showed with microscopes of Anton's that the lenses had a resolution of 1 micrometer. This is, as I keep saying, frankly astonishing. It means that he could well have used the microscope to see flagellum, the proteinist tail, found in many bacteria that they use for movement, a fact that was mostly dismissed until that point. As to how he made these microscopes, I will talk about that later. With his lens, Anton discovered apparently pretty much everything. So here we go for my first list. Well, I say my first list, that would be a lie. This list is lifted directly from the 1923 paper published in Parasitology by Dr Clifford Dobell, who we spoke about a minute ago. There is no space to describe all von Leeuwenhoek's multifarious microscopic activities. I should like to tell of his demonstration of the capillary circulation, and of his comparative studies of the blood, corpuscles in many different animals, of his studies of the histology of all animals and plants, and more particularly his pioneer observations on the spermatozoa. So admirable, but still so persistently misunderstood of his observations on the life histories and the anatomy of insects, especially the louse, the flea and the ant, and his discovery of parthenogenesis in the aphid, of his discovery of hydra and its reproduction by budding, of his discovery of the viviparous reproduction of the vinegar eel, of his discovery of the rotifers and their remarkable power of surviving desiccation, of his contribution to animal and vegetable embryology, to crystallography and the microscopic study of chemical compounds, But it is impossible to discuss these and many of his other discoveries here, even if I were competent to do so. And I must confine my attention to von Leeuwenhoek's work on protozoology and bacteriology. Here too, even the bare list of all of his achievements would be amazing. Quite frankly, I could have just recorded that paper and have done with it. Clifford has an enthusiasm for Anton that literally seeps off the page and has been a wonderful companion on this little journey. Indeed, Clifford wrote a biography of Anton that was published in 1932, having taught himself Anton's particular Dutch so that he could translate his letters better than Oldenburg and Robert Hooke did. So what of Anton's cellular and microbiological discoveries? His so-called animacula. Well, in 1676, merely two years after his first communique, a word that is infinitely easier to say than to spell, unusual so far in this episode, to Henry Oldenburg, He sent a letter called Observation communicated to the publisher by Mr. Anthony von Leeuwenhoek in a Dutch letter of the 9th of October 1676 here Englished Concerning little animals by him observed in rain, well and sea and snow water Also as also in water wherein pepper had lain infused This was published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society London In this groundbreaking paper, not so much for Anton himself, but for the Royal Society as a whole, he laid out his observations of creatures found within samples taken from rain, the sea, and a well in his house in Delft. This paper is an excellent example of his work, if not an excellent example of his writing. As Nick Lane, who is a secret god amongst science communicators, showed in his full trans biography of Anton in 2015, it is written much more like a diary, or, in my opinion, a florid lab book, than an actual paper. In this case, Nick, and Clifford before him, pushed the thought that it is because he was expecting heavy editorialising from Henry Oldenburg. He received some, but still much, superfluous detail is kept, including his trip to the seaside to recover his samples. July 27, 1676. I went to the seaside at Shavingham. The wind was coming from the sea, with a very warm sunshine, and viewing some of the sea water very attentively, I discovered diving, living animals therein. I gave to a man, that went into the sea to wash himself, a new glass bottle, bought on purpose for that end, entreating him, that being on the sea, he would first wash it well twice or thrice, and then fill it full of the sea water. which, desire of mine having been complied with, I tied the bottle closed with a clean bladder. That being said, I agree with Nick, How does an early pioneer of microbiology record his findings? How does he know what is important? Ultimately, he doesn't. The letter goes on to describe the fact that snow water, a source of pretty clean water in the 17th century, that had pepper ground into it, grew these animacula, but not without the pepper. This is a staggering discovery, one that shows that spontaneous generation is not likely, which is just astonishing, as it took 200 years and the great Louis Pasteur to prove it. In his care, to avoid contamination and his subsequent estimation of rates of growth, Anton shows an early disbelief of spontaneous generation. It's most impressive. And in fact, Anton refused to believe in spontaneous generation throughout the rest of his life. As you can imagine, these times were not without their troubles for Anton. The Royal Society did not fully believe him despite his good standing at the time and they had to send a handful of effectively reviewers to see his experiments up close. This worked and they published this 1676 paper in 1677. By 1680 he was inducted into the Royal Society not as a foreign member but as a full fellow. This alone speaks volumes about the man though it is of some interest that he's given this position after Christopher Wren, the architect involved with the rebuilding of London after the 1666 fire, creating many of the churches built in that Baroque style of the 1680s, as well as that grand old lady, St. Paul's, became the president of the Royal Society. He was also, coincidentally, born and died the same year as Anton, having lived to 90. And he is also one of the few men that didn't rob out, fall out with Robert Hooke. Unfortunately, by this time, Henry Oldenburg had died, passing away in September 1677, not long after that letter was published. In the 1680s, he made comments on grass work on ovarian follicles, on the macrostructure of mu- muscles, including the actin myosin bound and found within muscles, although obviously he had no idea what caused it. He discovered spermatozoa from frogs when he noticed that frogs do not reproduce by, well, Let's say, sticking things in holes? Or do we want to ha- keep up higherbrow? brow Let's hear how he described it. Having been solicitous to examine the generation of frogs upon the account of their young ones being like a worm with a th- round, thick body and a short tail, I was surprised to find that the male was not joined to the female in copulation, but he only sat upon her and had no membrane mascul- masculinum. I think that's a penis that at the same time when the female cast her eggs, the male also dropped his seed. The sentence carries on, but you get the gist. In the very same letter, he describes his thoughts, though not completely correctly, on how stomachs break down food through grinding, dismissing the acidic nature of the stomach. He discovered xylem and phloem in wood. He discovered that human skin is not smooth at a microscopic level, but is indeed scaly. But not only that, he discovered that they had smaller cells within those scales. In the 1690s, he looked at bone and discerned that wooden bone were grossly similar. He showed that gunpowder produced gas upon burning, rebutted a dis- disagreement about spermatozoa. Unfortunately, Anton's second wife, Cornelia, died in 1694, 23 years after they married at age 60. However, this did not slow down Anton. In 1701, alone, he produced eight letters on the edge of razor blades, blood and tadpoles, spider silk and the embryology of cod. This pace of work continued right up until his death in August 1723, publishing ten papers in just January of 1723, again on many varied subjects. Indeed, the disease that killed him is called Van Leeuwenhoek's disease, because even as he lay dying from a myoclonic flutter of the diaphragm, he wrote down his symptoms in detail. The man was hardcore and dedicated, and if this was all I knew about him, it would be enough. I, like Mr David Crowther, adore A Knight's Tale, and I will be endeavouring to cram as many quotes from that movie as possible into this series, although it won't be as easy as it would be for him. Throughout the last 30 years of his life, he was managed by his daughter Maria, living in the same house that he'd been living in since pretty much moving back to Delft aged 22. The reason he needed managing is that he'd finally become famous, meeting Gottfried Leibniz, the inventor of modern calculus, William and Mary, the Dutch Protestant King and Queen of England and Scotland, and even Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia in 1698. In which the now 66 year old Anton gifted him an okay quality microscope. Being king has some perks apparently. But at the same time Anton had allegedly become more difficult and more taciturn, enjoying his work, for n- that is now what it was, more than people. And so it is, we must come to the mortal land of Anton von Lewick, just two months shy of his 91st birthday. He is buried and there is a lovely memorial to him, at the old kirk in delft anton never fully lost his religiosity remaining a member of the dutch reformed church right up until his death indeed he felt that his work just uncovered the glory of god it is a shame that anton has become such an unknown outside of biology although that is changing with google giving him the dubious but far-reaching honor of having a doodle for his 384th birthday in 2016 and also he was named the 4th greatest Dutchman ever in a poll in a, in a public poll in the Netherlands he is the poster child for directed curiosity outweighing formalised training. The amateurs can have a big impact on professional thought His work, as shown through these 200 published letters and other published works, not through the IRS, is also remarkable in the fact that for 40 years he pretty much only did biology microscopy, unlike his contemporaries and people regularly spoken about here. Christian Huygens, Robert Hooke, Gottfried Leibniz, Isaac Newton or Christopher Wren, who just could not help but be polymaths. Bob Hooke, for that is his name, Doubled in microscopy, his legendary Micrographia being published in 1665. Indeed, Micrographia was supposed to have inspired Anton. He doubled in maths and physics, with Hooke's law being the formalised nature of springs. He helped Wren design the Dome of St Paul's. He pushed Newton into formalising gravity. Though that is contentious, I admit. Bob himself went back into microscopy in 1677 to try and replicate Anton's work with his own single-lens microscope. He did eventually succeed, and that helped in part to secure Anton's reputation, as he too, like Oldenburg and Doebel, learnt Dutch as to correspond with Anton. As for Christian Huygens, he is the late Saturn probe named after him due to his work in astronomy, but he also was instrumental in the formalisation by Newton of the laws of motion and was an artist. He created a myriad of different tools, his own refractor, spring balance clocks in contest with Robert Hooke, he also was massively sceptical of Anton's findings throughout the 1670s, writing in 1675 in a letter to Henry Oldenburg, I should greatly like to know how much credence our Mr. von Leeuwenhoek's observations obtain among you. He resolves everything into little gobbledles, but for my part, after vainly trying to see some of the things which he sees, I much misdoubt me whether they be not illusions of his sight. He could do this as he too, and along with his father and a man much better known for his philosophy, Spinoza, were lens grinders of much reputation. But by the 1680s, even Huygens had changed his mind when Anton relented and showed Huygens using one of his own, l- showed Huygens using one of his own lenses. My point here is that these people, especially Hook and Newton, did not specialize. Anton did to a greater degree, and in this way, I'd like to call him the father of monobiology, not just microbiology. He took this subject and turned it from a dalliance of physicists with free time. Or the preserve of the doctor into a proper subject of his own, that wasn't tied to the health of humans. Which is a funny conclusion for the opening episode of the history of biomedical science, I agree. His work is fundamentally important because although dismissed for many years, laid the groundwork within the Royal Society and beyond for rigorous science with a need for peer-review and conscientious editors. Something, in the light of scandals like Wakefield and GMOs, we seem to have forgotten. So, the final question then, to close out his life, is why? Why did Anton's name and work lay forgotten until the late 1800s, 150 years or so after his death? It seems that he was the victim of that dreaded concept that has always been with us, fake news. As the 18th century dragged on, the British became far more important on the global stage than did the Dutch. And although Bob Hooke's reputation lay in tatters because of his own pride and ego, and of course Newton being the worst, his words held more power than Anton's. Specifically, Bob Bob frequently bemoaned his inability to use single-lens microscopes because they tired him out too fast. The salient point here is that Bob bemoaned his inability not to use... The salient point here is that Bob bemoaned his inability, not the uselessness of the scopes themselves, which he in fact praised. If an object placed very near be looked at through it, it will be both magnified and make some objects more distinct than any of the other great microscopes. But because these, though exceedingly easily made, are yet very troublesome to be used because of their smallness and the nearness of the object. Therefore, to prevent both of these, and yet have only two refractions, I provided me a tube of brass, a.k.a. a compound microscope. This is not helped by the fact that Anton himself was notoriously secretive about his methods of creating the lenses, a consummate businessman, suggesting that they were much more laborious than they probably were this stopped people being trained in making l- single-lens microscopes, leading to the ascendancy of the compound microscope, whose chromatic aberrations and general difficulty in creating two lenses consistent and clear meant that the scientists following up did not believe the reports in full trans simply because they did not have good enough microscopes, echoing Huygens' problem, problem in the 1670s. Although this being said, Single lens microscopes were used by both Robert Brown when he spotted Brownian motion and the man who is probably the most famous biologist of them all, Darwin, on his trip on the Beagle, both in the latter half of the 19th century. Finally, as promised, here is a brief explanation of how his lenses work, as we have spoken about his work to various degrees of depth, but we have only spoken obliquely about his lenses, so here we go. The current thought is that Anton built lenses in three general styles. Melted glass bead from solid rod, ground glass from square block, and melted glass bead from a cylinder. The first bead is made by taking glass, melting it in the middle, and pulling it out into a very fine thread, while spinning it in heat to cause a bead at the end, form very small spheres and that invert the image. This is how Bob Hook made his lenses. The ground glass ones are made by mounting a cube of glass onto a dowel rod and using water as a lubricant, grinding the cube with a concave into a concave metal mould using grits of increasing grade. This is how the Huygens family and Spinoza made their lenses. Indeed, Spinoza was supposedly so good at making moulds that Constantine Huygens made a run of lenses from Spinoza's moulds 10 years after his death that were as good as the originals made with that mould. The final way, the melted cylinder, is the one that Anton jealously guarded and Bob was envious of. To do this, it has been suggested that a glass pipe was melted in half to form a tail into which air was blown, forming a glass bubble, which is also a perfect sphere. With all of these types they are mounted between two metal plates, sometimes of a copper alloy, sometimes silver, which Anton apparently smelted himself. That what has on one side a metal pin attached to some screw threads that allows for up and down movement, a screw thread that pushes against the metal plate allowing for focusing, and a screw thread that allows for side to for, allows for side to side movement, A.K. All three moves in the 3D world. To this pin is attached a sample. To use this, the object side is held up to a light source and is examined. It is that fact that Bob found injurious to the eyes. As to resolve it, you need to hold the metal plate right up against your eyeball, basically. To see these in action, go onto YouTube and type, it, uh, type in Anton Von Lewick microscopes and many different videos will be found. In what has to be the greatest tragedy of them all, the Royal Society had their collection of 27 original van Lurik microscopes borrowed, read stolen, by a fellow by the name of Everard Home in the eight, late 18th century, nine, early 19th, and no one knows quite where they ended up. And on that note, I'd like to finish with one last quote by Anton, written to Leibniz, in 1716 only seven years before his death my work which i have done for a long time was not pursued in order to gain the praise i now enjoy but chiefly from a craving after knowledge which i notice resides in me more than most other men and the the therewithal whenever i found out anything remarkable i thought it my duty to put my discovery on paper so that all ingenious people might be informed thereof I hope you have enjoyed this very first episode of Blood, Bones and Brains. This is probably not the format I will end up using, it's very heavy on personal information which as we get closer to the modern era will be more and more difficult to attain, ironically. But I will probably do this for the previously mentioned deceased big boys, Cock, Pasteur, Fleming, Flory, that sort of thing. I think the next episode will be half an hour or so on the formation of the NHS as a whole in the 50s and we will flip backwards and forwards from there. Share and give me a review if you liked it, and please review even more if you didn't. I'm still finding tone. Until next time, thank you for listening. Cue theme tune that was written and performed by Kyle David Smith.